This is the worst on-screen couple since Matt and Tim. Alright, all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 95 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the Protestant Reformation episode. Yes, I know I said Protestant wrong, but still. Or Protestant. Whatever you want to say, because that's what I want to say. But it is that episode of the SLS Cast. Because, as it turns out, in 1517, Martin Luther, the original... Martin Luther, wrote the 95 Theses. Now, or Theses. But that sounds a lot like Theses, and I really didn't want to go there. You see, he wrote them, and they are widely regarded as the initial catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. And there's a little bit of historical and religious knowledge all wrapped into one. And with that, I, of course, am Matt... Protestant in feces. <laughs> Didn't think I could do it, did you? <laughs> oh, you are truly the Mel Brooks of our generation, Matt. Jesus, if that could be taken seriously, I would like, like be truly honored. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Tim. I'm Tim. But I'm going to start off uh, my little portion of this rambling on of the opening of episode 95 to ask you, Matt, have you ever decided to nibble on your finger and eat pieces of the hard part of your fingertip. Uh, no? <laughs> well, you shouldn't. You know why? I will tell you. Because unlike eating paper, where if you eat bits and pieces of paper, you have a nice little, okay, I can chew on this for a while, and you can decide if you want to swallow it or not. I'm not going to say if I do or don't, because I don't want to be shunned by those tree huggers out there but with skin is annoying because if you happen to accidentally get a piece of skin in your mouth or unaccidentally because i know some of you do like to eat your little what i what is it finger calluses calluses yeah callus i said callus calluses 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 but it gets caught in your throat so much it gets caught in your throat do you have you ever had that problem before eating skin and it just gets I don't have a problem eating skin in general, except for fried chicken, because it's so tasty. Is eating skin a problem? Would that be considered, like, dude, we, never... we, you have to go see somebody for that. That is that is not good. I would immediately have to be in that camp of, oh my god, you need to go see somebody if you're eating. No, I don't even bite my nails. I am not a nail biter, uh, much to my wife's chagrin, because she is. But uh, well, she's yeah, a teacher. Not, you kind of it comes with the territory. I imagine it does. But yeah, I, I, no, seriously, I uh, yeah, my wife is very jealous of my fingernails. So I mean, I'm not a nail biter. Um, uh, yeah, no, like, ew. Why? Why? Why are you? Why? Why are we having this conversation? <laughs> because I was I, I was driving my car and, with the window down, and there was somebody driving in front of me who I guess spent. Uh, the past couple days in the sun and his skin happened to be free-flowing in the California wind and it happened to blow right in my face. I'm sorry. Somebody else's skin 
blew into your face? Yep. <laughs> California dreaming. It's such a weird... That's why you come out of here, right? Is to eat the skin of. I oh, literally have no response to that. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like uh, my uh, my girlfriend. She was working out, and I, she was on the tr- either on the treadmill or on the on the bicycle machine. And there was a guy in front of her who apparently has a lot of cats. And as she was biking behind him, the guy, a fan was on the guy. And this was a, a big guy, a big guy with, uh, he has like 20 cats or something. And the cat hair just flew off his back and was just landing all over my girlfriend. And it's not like she could, you know, bike around him or anything because it's a stationary bicycle. And I don't know why, but it's it's interesting how that happened, and then my skin... Yeah, I, I mean, I ate... ate I kind of ate a part of somebody. Luckily, he was driving a Corvette, so maybe that person was, was very clean and cleansed not too long before. I don't know. Wow. Okay, so, I have some news of the weird. Oh, that, that wasn't weird enough? <laughs> <laughs> no! No, as a matter of fact, it fucking pales in comparison. It's really just kind of, it's almost anecdotish at this point. Um, should have started with mine and then gone into your real life fucking experience well, over there. I just thought of it because I kind of like coughed some up right before the show began. So I've got some p- pretend news of the weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> this, is, this is via CNN. I would like to credit the source on Reddit that I was... Uh, that, that I was enlightened by, and that would be uh, Molsiber Tenebris. That's just the username on Reddit, folks. I do what I can. Uh, it is via CNN, though. A woman has filed a $250 million lawsuit against Disney, claiming that mega-hit Frozen is her life story. Isabella Tadakumi says the animated film took elements from her 2010 autobiography, Living My Truth. Court documents obtained by E! News includes a list of motifs Tadakumi claims were taken from her book, like two sisters, open doors or gates, and a moon setting. I'm as fucking lost as you are, I swear to God. In addition to damages... Tanakumi wants Disney to, quote, cease and desist from any and all sales, distribution, and marketing of Frozen in any media format, end quote. A Disney spokeswoman responded to her claim, saying, quote, this is beyond ridiculous. She needs to let it go, end quote. Bam. Yeah. Bam. A Disney oh, bam. Yeah. That was, yeah. When when Disney gets to quote their own fucking lyrics <laughs> to shut down <laughs> a lawsuit of the a frivolous lawsuit of this nature, I gotta give it to them. That's just fantastic. I might live right next door to that crazy Looney, Looney Tune. <laughs> does, she, does she have a moon setting in her house? Oh, totally. <laughs> it keeps me up at night. Uh, oh my god. It's where they fake the moon landings, of course. All right. Um, shall we get to the real news then? We shall. 
All right, here we go, folks. It is, of course, the news. I have uh, just two pieces of news trying to, uh, but they're but they're beefy, beefy news, and this one also comes from Reddit. This is actually pretty interesting because it's not very often that Reddit gets to be its own quotable news source. There was a guy. They have uh, different subreddits that cover the gamut from anything from cats to morbid reality, and one of them, of course, is movies. And some guy had asked. Uh, in the movies to make a discussion post that uh, says Kevin Smith tweets that Tusk is gasping for air at theaters. Considering his significant fan base, how has the film failed at the box office? Now, uh, this was submitted by user Mega Movie Critic, and so people of all types, you know, put in their reasoning or what have you. And I also had contributed to this thread, but Kevin Smith actually turns up and responds to the thread. Uh, his username is that Kevin Smith. If you are a Redditor, you will know uh, that that's pretty cool. And he says, Hi, it's Tusk maker Kevin Smith. For anyone interested in my take at the box on the box office of Tusk, here are two links to podcasts where I discuss the subject at length. And he has a link to Smodcast and his other podcast, Hollywood Babylon. And this is pretty beefy, guys. Again, so uh, do bear with me. I apologize for the reading, but I think it's really cool. It also goes into we're going to be covering Tusk later on tonight uh, for, for our uh, thing. I say tonight because, you know, it's the evening. It's September 30th, one day before October. And, uh, yeah, so here we go. Quote, but if you're not a podcast fan, here's some text. Tusk cost under $3 million to make. Yes, I'm stupid enough to make a movie that weird, but I'm not stupid enough to break the bank doing so. Demarest, the company that funded the film, made their loop back on foreign sales at the last Berlin market. The marketing budget of our theatrical release was a low spend, as our plan was to use the Toronto buzz to launch our national release. A24 ran a beautiful campaign. I have zero complaints. I'm happy that anyone showed up to see the flick at all. Seriously, it's a movie about a guy who turns another guy into a walrus. Thanks to anybody who ever said hashtag walrus yes. Monday morning quarterbacking the situation? The 600 screen release was way too ambitious. If you're going to open on that many screens, you have to spend far more than we did to let people know that there's a movie in theaters at all. We could have likely done close to the same opening number on half the amount of screens. In retrospect, a more traditional platform release might have worked better. Tusk is opening that way this Friday in Canada, debuting on four screens across the entire country in Toronto, Winnipeg, Montreal, and Vancouver. If there's interest, it will expand accordingly. Ask for why Tusk didn't do better. It's a weird movie, man. It was always a midnight movie, not a mainstream movie. When A24 said they wanted to go on 600 screens, and at one point there was even talk of 1,000 screens, if you can believe that, it was a wonderful vote of confidence. Now we know that wide-release vote of confidence was misplaced on me and my Walrus movie in this instance. But Tusk is by no means a disaster. It's a $3 million movie, kids. Everyone's financially okay. And while I can't predict the future, obviously, I think the flick will do quite nicely on VOD. 
Naturally, I wish more folks had come to see it in theaters, but I've been here before and I know how it all works out, because the Tusk release is akin to the Mallrats theatrical release. That flick cost $5 million to make in 1995 and was released on 700 screens. It did only slightly better than Tusk, earning 400k on the opening Friday. But while I lost the box office derby on that 1995 opening weekend, I won the marathon with Mallrats, as it's the movie people talk to me about the most and the biggest gateway slash intro into the rest of the films and all the podcasts. Tusk will have people talking for the rest of my life. Some people will love, some will hate, but it'll make you feel something. And that, they tell me, is art. I honestly don't mind all the roasting of my flesh online or being the whipping boy of the moment because even if I, quote, failed, end quote, I did so trying something different. But on the purely financial side, the biz of the showbiz equation? Because of Tusk, I got to make yoga hosers, which is turning out nicely. And also because of Tusk, we just secured financing for Clerks 3. And right after that, we wrapped the third part of the True North trilogy that began with Tusk, continues in Yoga Hosers, and ends with Moose Jaws, which is my Jaws with a moose movie. Tusk was the bridge to all that. If that's failing, yes, I'm a big fat failure, and I hope to fail lots more just like it in the near future. Don't be afraid to do weird stuff, so long as you do it cheaply and cover everyone's bets. Be bold. Be stupid if you have to. So long as you don't hurt anybody, what's it matter how dopey your dream is? If I hadn't made Tusk, if I'd let it die as a podcast, I wouldn't have three other movies I'm now making within the span of a year. Some folks will try to shame you for trying something outside the norm. The only shame is in not trying to accomplish your dreams. People have been telling me I'm a failure and that I'm doing it all wrong for 20 years now. Never trust anybody when they tell you how your story goes. You know your story. You write your own story. And all quotes. I don't. I don't think Kevin Smith's a failure. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't think so either. I don't. We can go into the finer merits of Tusk when it gets to that point. But I. I mean, it really has. It's only made like three hundred thousand. Um, like the whole uh, time it's been out. But like you said, you know, like there's uh, there's more there's a lot of self gratification that came from that come that is coming from the movie that seems to outweigh the gratification that he could get from money or from receiving right. millions of dollars. So good for him. I mean, I'm glad he's I'm glad he's happy because I'm kind of sick of hearing him bitch about how he hates the whole Hollywood system and stuff. So I'm glad he's finally in a good place. Sure, and as of this moment, and again, this is 11.15, recording at 11.15 at night on September 30th, 2014. Uh, according to Box Office Mojo, Tusk has grossed $1.4 million out of, out of 602 theaters. So, I mean, hey, I think, um, you know, my initial comment to this guy's thread was basically that I was pretty sure that they were just planning to make all their money uh, on the back end with Blu-ray and DVD, because I mean, you only need to sell 150,000 copies at $20 a piece to make three million bucks, and I'm pretty sure Kevin Smith can get 150,000 people to buy a DVD, you know, or Blu-ray. So I was pretty sure that this was all just marketing and stuff, just for the sake of fun and doing marketing and whatever. But yeah, I also am very glad. I was really cool. I thought it was really cool as well that he actually got in there and responded to his critics and the 
fair question. I thought that was posted. And, uh, yeah. So, anyways, so that was fun, and I just want to share. So, again, I apologize for the lengthy read. I don't like to read the news. I like to be able to comment on it. But I thought this was something pretty unique, so I went with it. All right, next up from me... Well, actually, first up from me is a Cinema Blend article here, and I'm not going to tell you the title of it because I'm going to be surprised as to what this article is about, but it's written by Mac Rodden, and it was published on September 27th of this year. And Cinema Blend sat down to discuss Terry Gilliam's newer film, The Zero Theorem, and in this article, they posted a portion of this, what they call a thought-provoking quote of Terry Gilliams. And this is the uh, this is the quote here. As I was walking in New York yesterday on the way to another interview, there on the streets were all these comic book covers and images for sale. It's taken over. I mean, the church is a dying thing, but comics and Marvel are everything now, aren't they? Don't they have all the answers to our lives? Aren't they the figures that we want to copy and be like and appraise to? Don't they relieve us when we're in trouble? End quote. Whether the exodus from the church and toward superheroes is widespread or not, Terry Gilliam doesn't see it as a very good thing. In fact, he doesn't see why anyone would indulge in the fantasy for more than a few seconds. He seems to think ultimately it's just empty. Quote, I like Batman but you don't want to believe in him, end quote. The director's controversial comments come in the wake of a particularly fluid time for the Christian church. Recent studies have claimed millennials, particularly white millennials, are leaving behind the traditional religion in record numbers. Because of this, the church is in a period of transition. It needs to figure out a way to grow without losing its own identity. Most millennials, obviously, aren't looking to costumed heroes for more guidance, but they may be looking to other places for sources of inspiration. End all quotes there. And again, that was from a cinemablend.com article written by Mac Rodden, and that article is entitled, Director Terry Gilliam Thinks Superheroes Are Replacing Religion. You know, I, I think Terry Gilliam definitely has a point he definitely has a point all you see are on on movie websites and entertainment websites is are, is basically the same stuff over the same super superhero movie you can't go a day without reading 30 articles over the batman versus superman movie which doesn't open for two freaking years or the upcoming avengers 3 movie or 2 movie that doesn't come out till next year and they keep looking for the next superhero movie and talking about something that doesn't come out for eight years or even ten years, even uh, way down the line. And they're treating it as if it's 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 like they're god in a way. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily go that far, but I think he in in that particular way he does make a little bit of sense. What do you think, Matt? I mean, it is true. I, I want to say it's something like. Um, 51% of Americans overall, uh, there was a, a, a study done, um, not a study, I guess it's just a, a Pew survey or whatever, uh, done earlier this year where it was something like 51% of Americans now identify themselves as non-denominational. 
at the very least, um, or, or non-religious or not practicing. There you go. Is not so for you know. So now the whole Christian nation thing is um, being called into question to a certain degree, and. I think that that is definitely true because if you look around, Terry Gilliam's statements are correct. All you see are the Marvel and the, and all you see is the comic book heroes. And it does kind of make me wonder, though, if we, as a culture here in the United States, if nothing less than pop culture, are trying to find something bigger than ourselves. Now, I'm not suggesting that we miss the boat with religion. That's neither here nor there for this discussion. But I do think it's interesting that as Terry Gilliams has pointed out, where religion is falling to the wayside to a large degree, we now have this this particular genre, superhero genre, eschewing its way uh, into the mainstream where that's what everybody theoretically wants to see and hypothetically look up to. I think it raises a lot of interesting questions. And I I mean, on the face of it, he's not wrong. So maybe there's more to it. And just so you guys know, if you don't know this already, Terry Gilliam is in fact not religious. Which, you know, it's interesting hearing somebody like that coming out and stating that. <laughs> All right. Well... Uh, to try and speed things along here, this is going to be my last bit of news here. This comes to us from Variety.com. Netflix. Oh, and this is courtesy of Todd Spangler. Netflix, Weinstein Company, Bust Windows with Crouching Tiger. Sequel day and date release. The film to debut simultaneously on Netflix and in IMAX theaters August 28th, 2015, first of several day and date titles covered in Pact. That's right, folks. Netflix has reached a deal with the Weinstein Company for its first original movie. Now, Tim and I were trying to filter and discern because it's, it's slightly ambiguous as to the writing. But based on another article that was looked at, it's not that Netflix has an original movie. The Weinstein Company is producing an original movie that Netflix will be distributing. And we'll get to that here in just a minute. So, just in case you were like, wait a minute, what did that say? That's what we're going with. Netflix has reached a deal with the Weinstein Company for its first original movie, a sequel to Ang Lee's 2000 martial arts pick, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, set to hit IMAX theaters and the streaming video service simultaneously next summer. The film, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, The Green Legend, is slated for an August 28th, 2015 debut. Produced by Weinstein Company, the movie is the first of several major films to premiere day and date, both on the SVOD service at no extra charge and in select IMAX theaters worldwide. Financial terms of the pact were not disclosed. Turns out Netflix has been eyeing day and date releases of movies, as Chief Content Officer Ted Sarandos said in a keynote last year at the Film Independent Forum in Los Angeles. The launch of the movie is likely to catch the ire of exhibitors who have in the past viewed digital encroachment on theatrical windows as a threat. Meanwhile... Netflix already has an output deal with Weinstein Company that makes the internet streaming provider the exclusive U.S. subscription television service for first-run films from TWC beginning in 2016 and has other deals with the studio, including for original series Marco Polo. 
So, Tim, I, I'm pretty sure you have something to add to this. But just on the face of this article, especially in the context of uh, certain exhibitors who might have ire over this, I, I don't know. This seems to me like it, like this could be the, the future is now, right? We're finally getting there where people who don't want to go to the movies no longer have to. But people who want to go and see the grand spectacle the way it should be seen in their eyes can also go and do so. I think that's the thing with TVs becoming bigger and better, with people, with some people just becoming lazier and lazier, not wanting to go out and deal with the hassle of going to the movie theater. And and if they have the option to watch the movie at home, even if they're not like big fans of the movie or necessarily looking forward to it, and they just want to watch it at home, instead of actually going to the theater and, and, and experiencing it at the movie theater, because let's face it, I know I've been to the movie theater uh, to go see a movie that I really wasn't particularly looking forward to seeing, but once I saw it, and it was the the spectacle of it, you know, being with the with the with the surround sound, being in the physical theater at the movies on a Friday, on a Saturday night, with all the other giddy fans ready to watch this movie, and ended up, and then you end up, you know, falling in love with it and really enjoying it. That's happened to me quite a few times, and I honestly think that that experience would have been different if I watched it at home. Because if I wasn't particularly looking forward to seeing that movie, I might have watched it, say, on an iPad, opposed to watching it on a big 60-inch TV, which I do not have a big 60-inch TV. Wish I did, but I don't. And so I think I wouldn't have enjoyed the movie or fell in love with it if it wasn't for watching it on a bigger screen. And I think that's the deal here. I think, uh, well, I mean part of the deal i think people are worried about well people instead of going and watching it on a big screen because let's face it a lot of people especially young folk don't have these great home entertainment uh, systems which if i had a fantastic home entertainment system i would love to watch movies uh, at home then again going to the movie theater has a particular atmosphere to it but like what i was saying a second ago i don't have a big TV. A lot of people don't even have a 45-inch TV. You know, you look at students, You, I mean, just young people in general. And so their way of seeing these movies originally would be going to the movie theater to go see them. But now they can watch it on their iPhone on or whatever their smartphone on their on their iPad. And so I can definitely understand where the issue is, and that's kind of where I am I am as well. Because once you start taking away from the movie theater, especially with a big movie like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, you know, that kind of taints things a little bit, in my opinion, in my opinion. But, you know, I guess we'll just see how it goes. I mean, this is something that's going to be very interesting. Um, like what Matt said, I did have something to add on to this story. And this is from thehollywoodreporter.com from an article entitled Regal Cinemark Slam IMAX Weinstein Company for Crouching Tiger 2 Netflix Deal. It's written by Pamela McClintock. And I'm just going to read a couple small paragraphs here. Regal operates 86 IMAX locations and will not carry the Netflix title in any of those theaters. 
And shortly after the Regal announcement, Cinemark, the country's third largest circuit, and Carmike, likewise, said that they wouldn't participate. Cinemark doesn't play day-and-date movie releases on any of our screens, including the IMAX screens that we operate. A spokesman said, Cinemark operates 14 IMAX theaters. Among the big three, that leaves AMC Entertainment, which has been more willing than other chains to play speciality movies that are getting a simultaneous VOD release. AMC, which has had the biggest IMAX presence, has yet to weigh in on the Netflix deal, but insiders say the exhibitor could end up carrying it in some IMAX locations. Uh, and then the argue, or the argue, and then the article goes on from there. Yeah, I think this is going to be something interesting, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how all this turns out. My thinking basically just boils down to um, they're going to go with the money. I mean, like I said before, people who want to go see it in IMAX are going to go see it in IMAX. Uh, as it's limited to just IMAX, and they do it during a time where you have, um, what am I thinking of, uh, a limited release there, then... Yeah, I, I, I don't think that it'll be that hard to get a couple IMAX screens for a few days and see how it goes. But to your comment that viewing it on a smaller screen as not truly intended could hurt the viewership, I think that there are more people out there who don't care than we would like to admit. And there are people who will watch it on their iPhone or they'll watch it on their tablet or uh, who, who will make that judgment and go, ah, I got a 17 inch laptop. That's good enough for me. I've got a Samsung 2014, you know, 10.1. That's good enough for me. I got an iPad mini. That's good enough for me. But you, you do have to admit though, that if you on your phone, I mean, again, Watching something on your computer because depending every computer and every laptop, you, the size, the monitor size varies. So you can see more, and obviously the sound is a lot better. You can actually get surround sound and stuff for your computer. But you, you do have sure. to admit that watching something on your phone, even with headphones, you still miss out on something. I mean, don't get don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that people won't miss out on things, but what i my what i purport to to be true which is what i why i think netflix got this deal and where i think weinstein sees the world going is that people don't care or let's say let's let's just say that it's not that they don't care it's they're just being realistic about the time they're willing to spend in a movie theater with rising ticket prices, rising concession prices, which, unfortunately, if this thing really takes off, is only going to increase ticket prices and increase uh, concession prices because fewer people will be going to the movie theater. Um, but people will make that sacrifice. Let's say they, they do know what they're missing out on, but they're willing to make that sacrifice because it's on their time. And their time is more valuable than the movie theater's time. And right, wrong, or indifferent, I think that's why these deals are getting made. Because the more people that they can, that Netflix sees it as, the more people they can get to be buying subscriptions, the more the more money that they're going to make. Um, as they have to pay licensing fees for the views that it gets, 
Weinstein's going to make money on the people that are watching it through Netflix than the seats that aren't going to get filled in a theater. But the people like you and me who are not going to miss out on an opportunity to see a sequel to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in IMAX, well, we're going to go drop our $15 and we're going to go see that and we're going to be happier. And you know what? We might be legitimately happier than the people who see it on their iPhone or on their computer or on their 46 or 70 inch TV at home. Or we might just think we're happier. (laughs) 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 And we're really just snobs. And that's that's okay, too. But I really think that just flat out saying no only makes a theater look bad. If they're willing to say, hey, we'll give it a shot. Let's see what happens. Um, You know, but just saying, you know, just saying no, I really think hurts it. And I think that they're going to miss out on the money. Uh, And ultimately, because they're not willing to be flexible and try new things and see what's going to work because they know that the model is changing, only hurts them in the long run because people are not going to go, people are going to sit there and go, well, I'm not going to Cinemark. They never have the movie I want to see. And on top of which, not only do they not have the movie I want to see, they refuse to get the movie I want to see and I can go at home and watch it. Well, I think you kind of prophesize the future of films or the uh, uh, films at movie theaters that that like the people that really want to go see a movie and will spend the $15 to go see it those people will go and could possibly turn into snobs because they will be able to talk about certain aspects of the movie that those watching it say on their phone or on their iPad who can easily be distracted by stuff will not pick up on and so we will be we will turn out to be the douchebags, the people that pay attention <laughs> and pay the money. Oh my god, we're gonna be hipsters. No <laughs> Oh man, you better go to the movies. That's the cool thing to do. Come on, man, nobody's doing it. Um Alright. So <laughs> Hips Hipsters. Their tagline hipster Come pressure. on, man, That's nobody's right. doing it. I love hipster that. peer pressure. There you that go. is hilarious. All right. Okay, well, cool. Well, then I guess we'll just have to follow it and see how it goes. Indeed. Um, I think anyone who is listening, you know, please send us an email, you know, the show at slscast.com or tweet at us at slscast or tweet me at nittwit12345. Let us know your thoughts on this. Are, are, are we snobs? Are we future hipsters? Or are we on the right track or whatever? You know, or do you have just your own opinion? Let us know. Let us know. Let us know. <laughs> oh my God. I can't believe we just did that. All right. Well, I guess with that, it is now time for Three Squared. <laughs> So this week's three squared is worst on-screen couples. Basically, couples on screen for movies that just have terrible chemistry. It is completely obvious that there are not there is no connection here and that it's basically dialogue on a page. We had um we we've definitely had some go-rounds with this trying to, you know, nail it down. And there, there's lots of material to be had in this, and and honorable mentions and technicalities and uh, yeah, it 
So, without further ado, Tim, do you want to go first? You should go first on this one. I went first for the news, so go ahead and go first for the three squared. Lay it on us, sir. What do you got for us? Okay, so, worst on-screen couples. Well, you know what, folks? There are a lot of them. Uh, quite, quite a few. I mean, there is something called the Golden Raspberry Award that has been going on since... Or awarded to the worst on-screen couple since, I think, 1994. That should be proof that this is actually a thing. And we're not just pulling stuff out of our butts. So without further ado, my first worst on-screen couple is... Pierce Brosnan's James Bond and Denise Richards' Dr. Christmas Jones in The World Is Not Enough. Reason? Or are you just hoping for a glimmer? And you are? Mikhail Arkos, Russian Atomic Energy Department. Miss? Dr. Jones. Christmas Jones. And don't make any jokes, I've heard them all. Always wanted to have Christmas in Turkey. Is that a Christmas joke? For me? So isn't it time you unwrapped your present? Oh, I think so. It's wrong about you. Yeah? How so? I thought Christmas only comes once a year. Yes, and as you can tell, this movie is, or as you may not can tell, maybe, this uh, movie is littered with ridiculous lines and cheap puns because James Bond needed a rival, a cheeky rival that was a little bit more than super attractive and big-breasted, but she had to have little snarky lines that did not quite match Pierce Brosnan's line delivery that, I I mean, at least I thoroughly enjoyed it throughout the course of his James Bond flicks. And so, with that, she wasn't your typical James Bond gal. I mean, let's face it, even Halle Berry did a decent-ish job with Die Another Day, which which was the following James Bond movie where she played Jinx. And... The other Bond girl in this movie, because there's two, there's always that one Bond girl that ends up becoming the bad Bond girl, who turns out to be somewhat of a villain-ish, and that is Sophia Marceau, I believe that's how you say her last name, and she should have been the Bond girl. She should have. That's annoying as shit, because we were stuck with Pierce Brosnan and Denise Richards. There is no wooing there, you can also, it's obviously a physical attraction but you know you might just say hey tim isn't every relationship that james bond has purely physical yes but with that there's always that slight romantic side to their relationship there's someone of this like saucy romantic sexiness that you feel like the steaminess you see the steam coming off the both of them because it's so hot and sexy and it just works This one, you watch it, and they could just be shitting all over themselves, for all we know. I mean, that's quite drastic and ridiculous, and uh, I'm afraid if Pierce Brosnan ever hears this, uh, uh, this little rant here, ever, 
uh, because I, it's not it's obviously not that extremely bad, but it's obvious that it's very awkward and not to mention she's American. And you know that's not going to last long. Anyways, my second pick for worst on-screen couple is every Adam Sandler movie after the movie Click from 2006 on. Yes, I mean, virtually every Adam Sandler movie, it's the same girl, the same love interest, even in The Waterboy, Happy Gilmore, Billy Madison, virtually the same... Well, I mean, I guess in the beginning, it was always, like, more of a snarky, bitchy lady who he ends up falling in love with, and she really doesn't care for him until, like, halfway through, and then there's the relationship, and it goes on from there. And recently, it's like, oh, you're my wife, we have kids, and an issue happens, and it's never a movie about the husband and wife, but it's about... The whole family, the husband, wife, the kids, and his friends, or the crazy hijinks he gets into. But, and therefore, that causes this weird, like, void between the wife and the husband. Whereas his first ish movies, like part one of Adam Sandler's career, it was more fun, it was more entertaining, there's just more stuff there. Now, it's just like, Oh, a really boring-ass relationship where, like, the most bizarre things happen. The most unimaginable thing happens with Adam Sandler's character is that I guess you just really he, you just really don't need to know or you just really don't need to see much between him and the lady who plays his wife. And, you know, a lot of great babes played his wife. You have Carrie Russell, Selma Hayek, and Kate Beckinsale. Kate Beckinsale. Kate Beckinsale. My third worst on-screen couple, Bewitched 2005. That's the movie that these two are featured in, and that is Nicole Kidman and Will Ferrell. That is right. This is the 2005 remake of the classic 1960s TV show about the witch who is a domestic housewife who gets into trouble and go you know, hijinks and whatnot. Well, the issue with the remake is that it has Will Ferrell in it. Nicole Kidman is really good. She is super cute. She is super sweet. And you really like her in this movie. She is a super likable woman. Likable character. But then you have Will Ferrell, who is Will Ferrell like he is in virtually every Will Ferrell movie. Loud, bombastic, over-the-top, you see his gut at least once or twice. It, it's just, it caused this weird clash to where everything was, the relationship was forced. The relationship was forced because the movie had to turn in to the TV show. And there's the scene in Bewitched when Will Ferrell and Nicole Kidman are dancing in the studio, very romantic-like, and they're trying to woo each other. And the whole point of the scene is that Nicole Kidman and Will Ferrell are slowly supposed to be falling in love to where at the end they're supposed to kiss. And as you watch it, it was forced. And that's pretty much it right there. So my three worst on-screen couples were Denise Richards and Pierce Brosnan from World Is Not Enough, that's James Bond and Dr. Christmas Jones, 
every Adam Sandler movie, which features Adam Sandler and a gorgeous wife. And then finally, Will Ferrell and Nicole Kidman's portrayals of of um, the actors playing Darren Stevens and Tabitha Stevens in the 2005 remake of Bewitched. All right. Good calls, sir. All good calls. All right, so mine are a little bit all over the place as well, but I think they're pretty good. This My first one is a movie that not only is the on-screen chemistry so, so bad it's just hilarious, but the movie itself is pretty fucking bad. So bad, it is to this day rumored to have actually broken up the real couple who were married when the movie was made. The movie, of course, is 1995's romantic comedy action-adventure film, Cutthroat Island. This was directed by Rennie Harlan and starred uh, Gina Davis, Matthew Modine, and Frank Langella. Now, Gina Davis and Matthew Modine play the on-screen couple, but... Gina Davis and Rennie Harlan were married in real life when this movie was made. They are not married. And it was a little bit after this movie came out that they stopped being married. Now, I'm not trying to say that this movie caused their marriage to fall apart. But I'm not not saying it either. Um... (laughs) Yeah, this movie is just absolutely terrible. They went through so many different leading men before they finally landed on Matthew Modine. Um, Matthew Modine only basically said yes because he already knew how to fence. And then they make this movie, and the movie is so bad. But um, I remember watching this movie and didn't and didn't realize at the time because this is 1995. I was 18. I you know I liked movies at the time. I wanted to be an actor, but. I still, you know, just kind of liked popcorn flicks or whatever. Weakness of mine. So I didn't think the movie was that terrible, really. But, I mean, looking back on it, it's pretty damn bad. But basically, it's Matthew Modine trying to be Carrie Elwes from Princess Bride. And no one, no one does that. Okay? No one puts Buttercup in the corner. Um... Yeah, I know, that's not the right quote. It's not even the right movie. It's not even the right genre. It's not even the right actor. But I think you know where I was going with that. Um, yeah, it's just bad. They're just totally, oh my god, it's just bad. I really think that from now on we should be partners. 50-50. 60 Give me the man. Give me a kiss first. Okay, so next up, also from 1995, because apparently that was the year for amazing movies. Um, fuck, fuck Tim. And the year he was born. No, no, no. 1995 was where it's at. I mean, we had Cutthroat Island. We also had, ladies and gentlemen, Showgirls. Yes. The movie where Elizabeth Berkley left high school <laughs> and became a stripper. <laughs> ah, the movie that, that, that was controversial with its NC-17 rating. About the poor girl who just wants to be... Uh, who just wants to be rich and famous and make it big. Well, she actually has this love-hate relationship with another dancer, an aging dancer, played by Gina Gershon. Now, they 
it's kind of like it's weird because they both like each other, but they both hate each other because they're rivals. And yet, so so they're supposed to be kind of like this love hate chemistry and everything, you know, like set pen up sexual energy. And of course, this was ninety five, and they're like supposedly bisexual with it and everything. And you know, this is supposed to be like a big deal. And yet, they both can't act. Neither one of them can act. It's not an accident. This movie's terrible. They just can't act. So you have complete, really retarded situations that culminate in one of the worst kisses. This is one of the few times I wish this was not a podcast. Um, or at least just not an audio one. Because I would love to be able to show... You should just Google Showgirls, Gina Gershon, uh, Elizabeth Berkeley Kiss. Okay? And just watch it. It's like 20 seconds. And you will laugh. You will laugh and groan and laugh some more. Unless, of course, you're 14, in which case you might get a boner. I don't know. <sighs> Do you like my nails? Not as nice as yours. Maybe I'll help you with yours sometime. If you want. Isn't that nice of you, darling? What are friends for? Finally, for me is Pearl Harbor. This is the 2001 American epic war film. It's romance, it's action. It's baytastic. And it stars Ben Affleck and Josh Hartnett and Kate Beckinsale and Cuba Gooding Jr. and a whole bunch of people that you should or shouldn't know. And of course, this is all about the lead up to Pearl Harbor and even a little bit of what happened after. Pearl Harbor proper. Now, I heard Tim harping on Kate Beckinsale and, you know, this insanely hot wife that Adam Sandler just clearly has no chemistry with. And see, that's the problem when you have super fucking hot chicks getting with not super hot dudes. It just doesn't work. Now, for the time period and the movie that was being done and everything, uh, Ben Affleck definitely looked better in terms of just you know, sevens being with sevens, tens being with tens, and so on. But we have to remember that water seeps to its own level. So when, in this whole love triangle thing that they have going on in the movie, that Josh Hartnett gets his shot, it's kind of like a seven being with a two. It just doesn't work. People often harp, there are actually movie lists out there where they where they pull Ben uh, Affleck and Kate Beckinsale, and they use them as the bad example. Kind of like Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman in the Star Wars prequels. You know, that, that bad chemistry. But Josh Hartnett's even worse, because at least when you're looking at Ben Affleck and Kate Beckinsale, you can reasonably assume that even without the chemistry, they'd at least go on a few bad dates and, you know, maybe have some regrettable sex. But here, with Josh Hartnett, it's just... It's like if I tried to go out with her. There's just no way. It doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way. Um, yeah, I just, wow, yeah. Where's everybody going? Just being discreet. Does it seem like everybody's acting a little strange? No. Well, maybe, maybe a little, yeah. People in this outfit have way too much time on their hands. I just hope they don't think there's been something going on between us. Oh, no. I mean, no. I mean, that would be embarrassing, right? So, 
my picks again are 1995's Cutthroat Island with uh, Gina Davis and Matthew Modine. Terrible chemistry there. Uh, 1995 Showgirls with Gina Gershon and Elizabeth Berkley. And then, of course, uh, 2001's uh, Pearl Harbor with Josh Hartnett and Kate Beckinsale. So, there you go. Next week, we will be doing a Did It Age Well? And that Did It Age Well segment is going to be Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Yeah. It was a tough one. We were going back and forth between this one and Crocodile Dundee. We had to, it, it came down to a coin toss. And Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure won out. So that's going to be what we're doing. And that leaves us with... The movie! <laughs> So the movies this week, The Equalizer, The Zero Theorem, and Tusk. Also, bonus horror movie time, Human Centipede 2. Because, you know, it's October now, and we gotta start doing our horror movies. And we wanted to do some terrible human transformation shit. And since Tusk was on the list, Human Centipede 2 made the list. Where do you want to start, sir? Let's go with... The one that I didn't see, The Equalizer. (laughs) All right. Uh, The Equalizer. This is, of course, a 2014 American thriller film. Uh, It's directed by Antoine Fuqua, and it stars um, Denzel Washington, Martin Kuskus, and Chloe Grace Moritz. Uh, It's got a cameo in there by Bill Pullman. So hey, that's that's fun, right? And basically, we're this is about a guy who is just a very quiet man who lives a very quiet life, working at a hardware store, um, like a Home Depot or a Lowe's. And he goes he he can't sleep at night, um, and so he goes and reads a book at a local cafe where he has befriended this hooker played by Chloe Grace uh, Moritz. Of course, the guy I'm talking to uh, talking about is Denzel Washington. Now, he is uh, basically like formal, former Special Forces guy, um, you know, faked his own death kind of whole, whole thing, you know. And um, bad things happen, and he decides he's going to put it right. Unfortunately, he inadvertently, in trying to put something right takes out, like, the East Coast hub of, like, the Russian mob. So everybody wants to kill him. Uh, this is based on uh, the TV show from the 80s, for, many, for anyone who's familiar with that. So if you're already familiar with that, then, you, then you've got the whole thing movie. The only thing I didn't like about this movie, uh, it's a good movie overall. The only problem is, is that I really felt like this was a bait-and-switch. They, they focused way too much on the action aspect instead of the instead of the thriller aspect of the film and so when the movie takes nearly 25 minutes before it really gets going and then takes these like 10 to 12 minute breaks in between the action sequences because they're doing like really good acting and really good storytelling with that time but that's not the movie I signed up for and so I kind of felt bait and switched now 
That being said, it's still a good movie, but it is far, far too long. It is literally about half an hour too long. This movie comes in at over two hours. Uh, running time is roughly 131 minutes. And it really needed to be an hour and a half movie. Now, even with the acting, even with everything, it's just that it's so... It's, it's that it takes too long. It's good storytelling, but it's kind of like when you just put too much exposition in. The writing is still really good, but it's just taking too long to get there. So, at the end of the day, I'm going to give this movie a solid three stars. But really, the length seriously hurt this movie. This movie could have been easily a four-star movie, uh, maybe even more, but... Gotta give it three stars because of the length. Alright, sir. So, uh, where would you like to turn now? Well, it looks like the only place to turn now would be for the Zero Theorem, which I heard you absolutely loved. <laughs> well, I... No. We always wanted to feel different. Unique. Objective analysis, however, concluded that we are but one in many single worker bees. Everyone's getting rich, except you. What seems to be the problem? We are dying. Who's we? Us. Ourselves. But there's only one of you. So it would appear. Uh, Quinn, how's it hanging? Is it hanging at all well? Aye. Sorry. Fear of death, fear of life, fear of open spaces, fear of people. We see nothing most of all. Are you trying to be difficult? Been handpicking talent to crunch it since before I was hired. Nobody lasts. It's a guaranteed burnout project. Zero theorem. All very hush hush. Zero must equal 100%. Good luck. I give him two weeks. Are you here alone? We are generally everywhere alone. You think my address is incredibly ugly? My dad used to buy me these incredibly ugly clothes to keep the boys away. Only made me want to get naked. Jesus. Zero must equal 100%. Where is this place? All in your mind. We're safe here. Zero must equal 100%. What happened to you, man? Life, life happens to everybody, all right? The only reason you're not laughing is because you're the punchline. You have made a very big mistake. I don't believe you. Why would you want to prove that all is for nothing? Close your eyes, and now, picture it in your mind. I know we're connected somehow. Just come with me. We always wanted to feel a reason for being. together for real. Alright, so this is the 20... It's Okay, it's a 2013 science fiction film, but it's only just seen general release here. Uh, it's directed by Terry Gilliam and stars Christopher Waltz, uh, Melanie Thierry, David Thewlis, uh Yeah. 
Uh, it's uh, Tilda Swinton also. Uh, Matt Damon is in it as well. Um, okay, so this is about a guy who has a very weird uh, life. He's an eccentric programmer who is basically trying to find the meaning of his existence in a very... Uh, well, I mean, it's it's the Orwellian triptych, so it's a very Orwellian society, uh, especially for him in this movie. And his misadventures in finding that answer and the outcome of finding that answer. Now, after I watched this movie, I just... I, I really did some soul searching. I talked to Tim about this before the show. I really did some soul searching, and I went back and looked at Terry Gilliam's career, and I looked at the movies that he's done, uh, this particular trilogy, um, the even discounting the fact that the version of Brazil that I've seen is not apparently the correct, the technically correct version. Um, but going back and looking, even as a start with Monty Python, uh, movies like Time Bandits, Adventures of Baron Munchausen, The Fisher King, and I came to this conclusion. I, I don't like his movie-making style. Now, that being said, I don't like it. I, need to, I feel like I need to be more specific. I don't like his movie-making style with his ideas. I think this is a guy who has amazing imagination and amazing storytelling ability. But I think that the way he sees the world and the art styles that he uses and then transposes onto film simply resonate with the the few people who get it. And it's not and when I say get it, it's not that people are smart or can't understand it or don't understand it. It's when you see something that just clicks with you and you get it, you like it, it's for you, it's about you. You understand the connection that, that's there to be made. I don't have that. Now, that's not to say that the movies are bad because um, discounting again Brazil, 12 Monkeys, really not that bad of a movie. Not that great, not that bad. Um, Zero Theorem, for me, too far out there. Brazil, also, just for what I've seen, too far out there. Uh, I am, however, willing to go back and watch that one again uh, to get the correct version or whatever. Uh, but when I was a kid, Time Bandits, didn't really like Time Bandits. Adventures of, uh, Adventures of Baron Munchausen, uh, a little bit better. Um, and then, of course, all of those... The weird artwork and cartoon stuff that were all of the interstills for uh, the segments on Monty Python, those were all him. That's what all, and that was my least favorite part of Monty Python. Don't get me wrong; some of the stuff was funny, and some of it was appropriately weird and everything, and and that was all cool. But still, that was the least favorite part of Monty Python for me. And I and I go through all of this to say, I, I take this long detour to say, I don't. I did not care for this movie. But I think it's just because, with the exception of The Fisher King, where it's him taking his style to someone else's ideas, 
and then it's gold. I think that people need to be taking his art and his styles and his imagination and then putting their spin on it. And I seriously think that everything he does will be gold from there on. That's just my personal opinion. Lacking that, for me, there's a lot There's a lot of good merits, a lot of interesting stuff that happens, interesting themes that get covered. Just didn't do it for me. 2.75. To be fair, though, uh, I don't know if, if this is what you were talking about or not, but he did not write Zero Theorem. It was based on somebody else's material. Uh, really, the only movies that he is credited as a writer for are The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, Tithe Land, the, Inv- the Adventures of Baron Munchausen, The Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas screenplay, Brazil, The Crimson Permanent Insurance was the great short that was shown before uh, A Meaning of Life, and then finally, uh, I believe, yeah, Jabberwocky, that's what I was missing. Jabberwocky, and of course, he's credited with working on Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Meaning of Life, and Life of Brian. Oh, and Time Bandits as well. He also did Time Bandits. So kind of like what Matt said, I definitely agree with him. People either jump on the bandwagon or they fall off the bandwagon or they just choose not to get on the bandwagon whatsoever with uh, his type of movies because they are different. They are weird. And it just has, it it, it just clicks. You know, it's like there, I I mean, I, I guess it's what makes... Uh, why some people have said that listening to Matt and I talk about movies is so interesting is because there are many movies that I love that he doesn't understand why I could love those movies. It's the same with the way with my girlfriend. She's like, are you kidding me? You give this movie four stars, but you give the burbs two and a half stars because she loves the burbs and doesn't understand why I don't really care for it all that much. Uh, and you know, this is kind of one of, this is definitely one of those movies. However, I will say, and I will be the first to say that it's obvious that it's a Terry Gilliam movie. It has the trademark atmospheric tone to it, the look of it. It's obviously a Terry Gilliam movie, because of, I mean, even with those two traits, you know, the atmosphere and the look. But on top of that, you have everything from the story to the characters to even the job that Christoph Waltz, his character, has in the movie. And even the steps the film takes to reach the ending of the movie. It's obviously Terry Gilliam. And to me, I love that. I love that there's somebody out there willing to take a chance to willing to explore his imagination and play around with social commentary in a way to where it's not blatantly social commentary where you can have fun and just sit down and enjoy the movie for what it is and i am all for it and with that i definitely say i thoroughly enjoyed the zero theorem it's funny it has great performances it has in my opinion memorable characters christoph waltz i thought did a really good job but to me it was lacking one thing one thing i thought it could have made this movie a five-star movie for me and that is if they incorporated quicker cuts it happens more than once it happens quite a bit maybe every other scene every other scene hits this like standstill where something great happens, you know, you're watching the movie and you're completely invested, but then Christoph Waltz, like, turns around and the character is just on him and 
you, there's really not much emoting going on for there to warrant such of a you know such a standstill with the camera just on him that it kind of feels like five minutes is passing by where nothing is going on but really it might be 30 seconds or 40 seconds and still there's not a cut and you really want that extra umph and to me that's what it's missing it's missing that umph it's missing those swooping uh, those swooping shots into this grandiose world that Brazil had, that even 12 Monkeys, in a way, had. Baron Munchausen had this. It, it had this more grandiose feeling, though, again, this is definitely a smaller film, but there were also moments of the movie, of this movie, where it, de where it most definitely felt bigger. It felt huge. But it just needed that extra pick-me-up. And honestly, that would have made it a five-star movie. With that being its only fault in my eyes, or in my eye, or in my soul, I don't know, I give this movie 3.75 out of 5. What is the law? Not to go on all fours. That is the law. What is the law? Not to hunt other men. Law has been broken. You've got to get some help. I think you must be sick. You You're jealous! I've become free, I've been released, and you can't stand it. You'll do anything to bring me down. He who breaks the law shall be punished. Back to the house of pain. Back to the house of pain. Does this look sick? Does this look like a sick man to you? No. He is as I am. If you do not obey him, he will punish you. The belt barrier. Is he? His is the hand that heals. His is the house of pain. His is the house of pain. His is the house of pain. The Halloween movies. Terrible human transformation shit. We have two movies left, sir. Now that we're in the official horror section of the cast. I guess we can talk about of uh, the human centipede. I imagine we won't... <laughs> oh, can we? Can we, please? We won't waddle in this human fecal matter <laughs> for too long. Oh my god. Okay. Alright, now, the human centipede, while not the best horror movie in the world, was at least a novel idea. And... We both, um, neither one of us thought it was, like, particularly great, but we both thought it was pretty good, a pretty good flick, given what it was, given the subject matter, and how they chose to go about it. Now, Tom Six said that he was making, basically, that the Human Centipede 2 was treating the Human Centipede like it was a kid's show. And he wasn't fucking around. But the problem is, is that everything that made the first movie good that piqued your curiosity about how gross they could have made it he purposely goes over the top on here and he's doing it so incredibly over the top because he's trying to he's he's trying to force feed you the satirical nature of the piece that is this now trilogy of movies um 
The problem is, is that he missed the point of the feeding, so to speak. It's not that we needed the nutrients provided to us in the satire form. It's that we, it, you need to have something that you're being satirical about. You can't make a satirization of your own material. It ceases to make your current, the material itself relevant. And it's like he lost sight of that in the fact that he was trying to do everything. And I'm sorry. This movie, there is nothing for me redeeming about this movie in any way, shape, or form. This has got to be one of the just, okay. You have, if you've listened to the last 94 episodes of this show and including the, 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 the original iteration of this show, if you know anything about me, I am not an easily offended guy when it comes to movies. And this movie succeeded in offending me. There is nothing redeeming about this movie. It is complete garbage. And I, and, and if it were humanly possible, I would give this fucking movie a negative review. Negative star review. But I can't. Because there's no way to make an aggregate for that. So, barring that, zero fucking stars. Zero fucking stars. I might have to go back and give that stupid Matt Damon movie like a quarter star because even that deserves more than this movie is getting. Um, but, uh, yeah, zero stars for me. Complete shit. Yeah, I don't even want to talk about it anymore. Zero stars. Well, in speaking of shit, this movie is shot entirely in black and white. Except for the shit. Except the one thing they had to show in black and white. No, nay, nay, nay. It's not the blood. It is the shit. And it was disgusting. Not only was this movie horribly made, horribly acted. I mean, the movie offended me as well. There was no art. There was no artistic value or reasoning in this movie. The first one felt like a movie it either was suspense there was character there were characters there and you know what there was a really great sadistic bad guy you know i mean they they got a really good bad guy for the first one and that alone is kind of worth checking out human centipede the uh, full sequence the first one whatever the hell it's called first sequence the first sequence Yes, this one is called full sequence yeah and you get to see the full entire freaking sequence now, the movie is pretty much about the character of Martin, this mentally challenged dude who is obsessed with the films of Tom Six, the Human Centipede film, and he decides to, like, he's obsessed. He even has this ridiculously, like, ridiculous collage, book collage of drawings and pictures from the first movie that it was obvious that the prop guy just kind of threw together in, like, a day and a half. And uh, it was it was just stupid, stupid, stupid stuff. And then he goes on, and the last 30 minutes of the movie is about him either trying to poorly put the human centipede together, or he spends 10 minutes basically trying to make everybody crap into each other. 10 minutes. 10 minutes is spent with him trying to flush the systems of 10 freaking people into each other it is it was it's horrible it's disgusting it's offensive again there's no art there's nothing to it there's no there's no horror the movie is about the guy with the disease therefore there's no connection with these characters at all 
And get this, when I thought the crap in color was going to be the worst part of the movie, no. There is a pregnant woman, a naked pregnant woman. Oh, you're actually, don't, 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 don't even, you know what, don't even glorify the movie, don't even, don't even give them the satisfaction of, just tell people to stay away. Yeah, seriously, okay, there you go, stay away, because I get, I mean, there, you have to draw a line somewhere, it, when it comes to, uh, movies like this, and guys, this is it. I, I, I swear to you, this is it. You might not understand until maybe the last 20-some-odd minutes or so. You just have to. Zero stars for me. This is a zero-fucking-star movie. Ladies and gentlemen, the first across-the-board zero-star movie for the SLS cast. And here's the here's two things I want to add to this. This was a zero-star movie, and this and the movie that... It, it's available on Netflix if you're foolish enough to see it. Both The Human Centipede, which is at least worth viewing for curiosity's sake if nothing else human centipede first sequence sure human centipede full sequence no but it's on it's on netflix this the one that's on netflix is the 88 minute international version there is still a 91 minute director's cut that's unrated and i don't want to know what's in that four minutes i don't want to know don't, three minutes, rather. I don't even want to know what's in that three minutes I got cut. Fuck it. I don't want to know. The worst part is, though, is that he did get a third one made. It's, uh, apparently it's already been shot. It actually has, um, uh, Eric Roberts is in it. Julia Roberts' brother. The bad guy from the first, uh, Expendables movie. Uh, he was also one of the bad guys in The Dark Knight Rises. And, uh, yeah. So he's in it. This movie takes place in a prison. It's called Human Centipede 3. Full sequence. I'm sorry, final sequence, rather. And this one's supposed to have 500 people. It's terrible. 500 sweaty inmates. There you go. In a desert. Yeah. Desert prison. All right, so last but not least, then, looks like we have Tim and I reviewing Tusk. Always do sober what you do drunk. That'll teach you to keep your mouth shut. Hemingway said that. Yes, he did. And he said it to me. I don't want you to go to Canada tomorrow. For the podcast. It's what I do. I travel around and I interview weird or interesting people. So look out, you crazy Canucks! Wandering Wallace (laughs) takes a raunchy road trip up to the Great White North. Hello. I'm an old man who has enjoyed a long and storied life at sea. And after eons of oceanic adventure, I know I do not wish to spend my remaining years alone while I have such stories to share. How far is Bifrost from here? It's about two hours from here. It's about two hours away. I hate American guys. Good evening. It's nice to meet you. Could I interest you in some tea? So what happened after the boat sank? I was alone. And then something very swift and frightening moved by me. Walrus saves your life? The walrus is far more evolved than any man I've ever known. Present company included. Thank you. You're welcome. Would you? Would you? There, there. It'll be all right, Mr. Tuff. He hasn't called me in three days. I'm worried.
why are you doing this? Are you really mourning your humanity? I don't understand. Who in the hell would want to be human? We talked about what Kevin Smith had to say about the money it's been making and all of the things that it's been able to do. But basically, and, and as we said before, it's the 2014 horror comedy drama film. Uh, it's written and directed by Kevin Smith. It's based on a story from his Smodcast podcast. And it's about a guy who kidnaps another guy and turns him into a walrus. It's just pretty much that simple. Um... When I read to you earlier where Kevin Smith said, it's a weird movie, that's the best way to sum this up. It's just a weird movie. Um, morbid curiosity, it does things right. Um, for better or worse, makeup and effects regarding being turned into a walrus, also done right. Um, in my opinion, um, crazy guy with a vendetta done right. Virtually everything else not done right. Um, they go out of their way to set up the tropes and of why you wouldn't like to, why you shouldn't like, or don't want to like Justin Long's character. Uh, He's the podcaster guy. And they do this basically through flashbacks, primarily, but also um, in the way he handles himself up to meeting Howard Howe, played by Michael Parks. Brilliantly. I thought he stole the show, basically. Uh, Say what you will about uh, Guy Lapointe, or Guy Lapointe, whatever. Um... (sighs) He, uh, yeah, Justin Long, he just plays this, it's like everything stereotypical that you hate about Americans is what this guy is. Um, everything else that even around his podcast partner, played by Haley Joel Osment, and his girlfriend, played by Genesis Rodriguez, everything else is just so completely predictable that the way Smith frames his shots for flashbacks that happen or things that are happening while Justin's long Justin Long's character is going undergoing the transformation that they're completely unnecessary because it's written in such a way that it is that the character aspect is totally predictable um and so you're left kind of going, all right, well, I guess this is how this is going to play out. Oh, look, and that's how it played out. 
I think that this probably would have been a lot better done if it had remained centered on the insanity of Howard Howe, the, again, the character played by Michael Parks, and just basically gone through the gamut of of, of what transpires with him. I think that would have gone better than the way they tried to go about getting Justin Long's character rescued in the film. Now, due to the craziness of what happens to him and the insanity that takes place in this transformative experience, when you get to the final part of the movie and, and it ends, you're also left with this kind of mixed feelings there as well and it's kind of like I don't know is it was it good or was it dumb and I'm just kind of left wondering I don't know if I should give him the benefit of the doubt or not so I just was like yeah, I guess it's okay but then you also have that whole water seeping to its own level thing and hopefully I haven't just flat out given it away, but um, I'm sure you might be able to infer from what I'm saying here. And that just destroys the illusion for me. All in all, I, I can't honestly say that I truly like this movie, but it was better than just okay. So, again... 2.75 for me. Bring us home, Tim. Yeah, I'm in the same boat with you. I mean, there are just way too many elements in this movie. Like, are you supposed to laugh, cry, get grossed out, get angry? I mean, there's not really suspense in this movie whatsoever. Maybe kind of close to the beginning of the movie, once when, uh, once before the sadistic stuff starts to happen, right before he gets, Jesse Long's character gets trapped. I guess, or drugged. But after that, there's really not much to it because the movie can't build off of Kevin Smith's crazy, goofy humor. I mean, it's just not, it's not just like tongue in cheek humor, it's over the top humor. I mean, this Guy LaPointe thing, I mean, come on, I mean, he looks familiar, but. I, you, the movie breaks away from its narrative to spend time with Haley Joe Osment, uh, Genesis Rodriguez's character, and this Guy LaPointe guy. That when they return to the Tusk Walrus human storyline, it's already time to save him. And there's no, well, try to save him. And there's no, like, build up to that at all. It's just, and that's kind of like what the movie felt like to me. There was no build-up to anything except the build-up to Justin Long's character getting, uh, getting trapped by the, uh, by the, by the scientist or by the doctor or whoever that, or whatever the hell he was. And so that, that's kind of what I felt overall. There were good parts to it. There were funny parts to it. But overall, I, I mean, I was just left confused at the end. So I give this one 2.5. I am dead in the middle. Well, alrighty then. Okay. So, next week, for our wonderful show, we will be reviewing 
Are you implying that it's not a wonderful show? <laughs> That's not for us to decide. That's for our special listener to decide. All right. Um, so next week, though, that does conclude the movies. Though so next week's flicks are going to be Gone Girl. And then we're also going to do for our, uh, you know, October horror films, we're going to be doing uh, the Italian horror study. So we're going to be doing Dario Argento films. We're doing Deep Red from 1975, Suspiria from 1977, and Tenebre from 1982. So those are the films we're going to be covering along with Gone Girl, which is the thriller with Ben Affleck in the theaters that will be out by the time the episode airs. Yay! So I think that brings us to the end. And now it is time for the spiel, is it not? Spiel on! All right. Well, the majority of the music you've been listening to today uh, has been brought to us, as always, by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at at, uh, ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, goodness, both slash Cries of Solace. The additional music of Music Gloom Horizon and Professor and the Plant is courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. As for us, we are still, of course, the SLS cast. And you can find us at slscast.com. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me, Matt, on Twitter as well at nitwit12345. You can magically find and follow the technology that is available to see if you can get a hold of Tim on Twitter. And you can always like us on Facebook, search us there. You can even subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Ronald Reagan, I get to say this, when you can't make them see the light, make them feel the heat. And this is Tim urging you to not eat your skin. Please, don't don't do it. You'll choke on it. (laughs) Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.